Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. The day after that, uh, Sunday, we were married on a Saturday. The day after that, our daughter texted us and asked us, what time were you married? It was 7 p.m. December, December, uh, June the 10th, uh, 1972. And so we got a text back from her. Uh, She is, if nothing else, her uh, father's daughter. 18,262 days, 13 hours, 36 minutes, and 44 seconds. At that time, on Saturday, many of you know I'm a historian and I like dates and I like numbers. You know, I calculated if we had saved a penny a day, sometimes savings are overrated. Uh, if, I, if we had saved a penny a day, it would have been $182.62 we'd have in the bank now. We might just be able to gas our car up and buy one load of groceries, I think. Elizabeth II has reigned uh, 25,701 days as of today. If she lives 593 more days on the 2nd of February, 2024, what auspicious date will she have passed? The longest reigning monarch in European history, Louis XIV. She will be the longest reigning monarch in European history. You know, when you look at the big picture, when you look at numbers like that, thousands of days, tens of thousands of weeks, millions of seconds, or billions of seconds. You know, the sands of time can make each day seem rather mundane, rather ordinary. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald spoke about mundaneness, and he had a skeptical view. He said, your life on this earth will be as always, an interval between two significant glances at a mundane mirror. Now you unpack that. What he was saying is, life is pretty mundane, it's pretty ordinary. Bill Moyers, an erstwhile Baptist, and of course, PBS guy, put it this way, he had a more positive view. He said, creativity, what is creativity? Creativity is piercing the mundane to discover the marvelous. And you know, sometimes that's the way it is. We can discover marvelous things in the mundane days of life. Martin Luther challenged us, and it had to do with faith. He said, what will you do? What will you do in the mundane days of faithfulness? Being faithful sometimes is rather mundane. You know, we've been talking about worship now, particularly for the last three weeks, and we have rediscovered that worship is not simply, it's more than, but it is essentially walking with God when he beckons us, come walk with me. And worship me, and walk with me in spirit and in truth. But be careful, I am a holy God. Come into my presence with all. For I am the great I am. I'm the glorious God of creation. I'm holy God almighty. When you come into my presence then, I expect you to confess your sin and I will forgive you 
and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then we can walk in fellowship with him. Then he commissions us to go out and not just serve him, but to worship him daily by serving him, by telling others and modeling him so that they might come to know Christ. And most recently, we revisited the issue of holiness. This means that as we walk out there, we walk not only as a priesthood of all believers and a priesthood of each believer, but we also are a holy nation. And holy means holy. He expects holiness from us. In all of that, sometimes we may feel like something's missing. You know, worshiping God can seem to be mundane. Worship can become almost, and I'm talking about not only what we do here on Sunday morning and on Sunday evening and Wednesday evening when we come together collectively, corporately, but every day walking with him can almost seem like a mechanical duty with very little passion, mundane. Serving him can also sometimes, frankly, if we admit it, seem to feel not just routine, but rather burdensome. An everyday function which becomes mundane. You know, salvation and our realization of that, we're told by scripture, should be quite the opposite. Our salvation should prompt a different kind of response. Isaiah 55 says, for you, having been saved, you will go out with what? Joy and be led forth with peace, such that the mountains and the hills themselves will break forth with shouts of joy and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. We should feel that kind of joy, but sometimes worship and walking with God on a daily basis becomes very mundane. Ask the Israelites after 40 days of wandering in the wilderness, over 50, almost 15,000 days. Ask the Jews, not just 10, not just 100, not just hundreds, but thousands of years with countless sacrifices daily sacrifices in the temple, it could become very mundane. Ask the church at Ephesus, what was John's charge on behalf of the spirit of Jesus Christ about the church at Ephesus? They had not lost their first love. We typically say that. It literally says, you have what? Left your first love. You have abandoned it. You know, when worship and walking with the Lord seems to become so mundane. There are th some things that we try to do to correct it. So I'm talking specifically about what we do here on Sunday morning, but I'm also talking about how we walk with the Lord every day. One of the things is that we add more rules. You know, well, if we just have stricter guidelines to make us holier, things will be okay. That results in what, friends? Legalism. Ask the Pharisees. And then sometimes what we do, do is we pile on activities. Well, if we will do more, if we will become busier for the Lord, it'll fill the void in our life and it'll please God. But that becomes not just the business of God, but busyness. Sometimes then what we do is we substitute excitement for joy, especially in some of our worship services. I hope that we aren't guilty of that, but you know what I'm talking about. We crank up the emotional side of worship, and we energize ourselves so that can, we can really be excited for the Lord. That is not necessarily, friends, joy. It may be a product of it. Sometimes what we do is we replace genuine simplicity in worship with novelty. 
What we seek is new things and latest fads that can kind of crank up worship and make it more relevant and modern. All of these fail to hit the target. You see, God's assessment is this. He takes no pleasure. God takes absolutely no pleasure in countless sacrifices. And the way we try to manipulate things, not so much to please him, but to satisfy ourselves. Ask the prophets that we heard them sing about today. Well, some of them were minor. Ask some of the major prophets too. Isaiah said this, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Malachi, all say God does not revel in endless sacrifices. Jesus rebuked this as empty worship. He quoted Isaiah. He said, these people honor me with their what? Their lips. But their hearts are what? Far from me. They worship me in vain and emptiness. They worship me in vain. Their teachings, their doctrines are simply rules by men. You see, empty worship. Instead, we are called, as we walk every day with the Lord and as we come together corporately in worship, we are called to sincere worship based on love, based on relationship. Hosea put it this way, after having said he doesn't delight in countless sacrifices, for I delight in a steadfast love, hesed, mercy. I delight in steadfast love rather than sacrifice. And get this, and the knowledge of God, not just knowing about God, but the deep knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Spiritual worship, genuine worship is humble. David tells us this. It's not arrogant. It's not mechanical. It's not mundane. David in Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God, what he really looks for are what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, these things you will not despise. You see, David set the example. David had been caught in a great sin. You know the story. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he had her husband put on the front line so he would be killed. He murdered Uriah the Hittite, 2 Samuel 11. Then he was confronted by Nathan the prophet who rebuked him. He was a false shepherd sending his sheep to the slaughter. David repented. He said instantly, I have sinned. I have sinned against Bathsheba. No. I have sinned against Uriah. No. I have sinned against you, Nathan. No. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan instantly then pronounced, God has forgiven you. There will be a payment for that, but he has spared your life. David then expresses his confession of faith in a liturgical way in Psalm 51 because the heading over the psalm tells us that's the background. The first nine verses, then, he confesses and he begs God's forgiveness and cleansing. In the midst of that, David also recognizes there's a need for more. There's a need for more than just confession, as important as that is. There's a need for more than cleansing and forgiveness, as important as that is. But there's a need for more. And you see this found in verse number 8. You see, it's a preface to what we are talking about in verses 10 through 13 today. He says there, I know that there's more. There's more that I need. I need to experience the joy that will sustain me in the mundane days of life. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. 
You see, what David realized is beyond cleansing and forgiveness, there is a great and deep need for us all to experience restoration. Restoration of the heart and the spirit. Restoration of our relationship with God. Restoration of the joy of his salvation and the restoration of our will to follow him. So would you stand with me as we read today's text? You see, he comes to this point proclaiming the need for restoration in verses 10 through 13. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. May God bless the reading of his word, and let's be seated. You see, in this passage, we see that God does a mighty work of restoration if we ask him to. God restores our heart and our spirit. God restores our relationship with him. And as David asked, God restores our joy and our will to serve him. And as a result of that, then God commissions us. God commissions us to share all of those things with a lost and dying world, to share the joy of his salvation. The first of those, God restores our heart and spirit in verse number 10, created me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know, the heart here, of course, is not just the emotions. We think of it that way, but the heart, of course, in Hebrew means the very center of being. He's talking about his very identity. Recreate me is what he's saying. He says, create in me a new heart. He's saying, recreate me as a being. You know, as we go through life, what we do, you want to use a computer analogy, our heart, the center of our being, our identity, we start adding apps to it. Every day, you add apps to it. And sometimes those apps are unhealthy, and our life becomes cluttered with sin, but also the frivolous and the meaningless. It becomes infected with viruses, and we call that sin. And we need a restart. We need a makeover. You know, I, I, I hate it when uh, Microsoft sends out those updates. I don't know about you. I, I wait as long as I can. And then finally it takes over and it makes me do it. But I know it's going to change something on my computer and I won't be able to find something that I've looked for that I've seen every day for three years and all of a sudden it's somewhere else. You know what I'm talking about. It, it's the manufacturer's makeover. But this is a good kind of makeover. What it says here is we're asking for a makeover from the creator who made us. To set it back to the manufacturer's standards, the original settings. And the standard is what? A pure heart. 100% fine. Absolutely. That is impossible to do with precious metals. It is impossible to, to uh, refine a metal, gold or silver, to 100% purity. That's impossible. The purest gold ever produced is what they call the 6-9 gold. It was produced by the Perth Mint in 1957. Six nines. 99.9999% pure. But guess what, folks? There was a 0 .0001 impurity in it. The best gold today is produced by the Canadian Mint. It's five nines long. 
But there is no precious metal that is absolutely perfect and pure. Only God, only God can make anything absolutely perfect. He did this when he created Barah, and that's the word that is used here. It's not always used that way. It's not always used to indicate creation from nothing. But he created everything that we see, hear, feel, smell, and touch from nothing. And when he first created it, he looked at it, and he said, it's what? It's good. That's another way of saying it's perfect. It is set to accomplish my will the way I have implemented it. It's perfectly good. You see, he created us in the same way. And he has the ability, and only he has the ability, to reset the heart, to recreate you, and to bring you back to his original purpose. And that's what it means when Jesus says, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is, be like he created you to be, to accomplish what he called you to do. Only he can do that. It says here, to renew a steadfast spirit. The Spirit is the animating power of our life. The Spirit is that which gives us a moral compass and an azimuth and a direction. The Spirit is that which is inspires and motivates all of our behavior, all of our thoughts. And David is saying here, he's suggesting two things when he says to renew the Spirit. One thing he's saying is to repair it. The other is to recharge it. Both of those have to do with renewal. To repair it means to make it useful again. Our spirit sometimes becomes so clogged with the mundane things of life and sin that it become, they become, our spirits become useless. And what he's saying here is, I need to become a new device. The, the term in Semitic actually conjures up the image of a brand new sword that is highly polished with a razor's edge, a newly polished sword. Or if it is an old sword, it is taken and it is polished and it is sharpened and it is restored to its original usefulness. And that's what David is saying here. Restore me, God, to my original usefulness. He knew that his image as a king, because the word had gotten out, had been compromised. He knew that he was not as useful as the shepherd of the people as he had been before, but he was asking God, restore my usefulness. Repair, not just my image, but repair me. The word is used often in the Old Testament, to speak about repairing the house of God, repairing the broken down altars. And that's what David is saying. Repair this broken down altar so that it will be useful for your purpose. And then secondly, reinvigorate me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And in Psalm 103, we're told, he satisfies your desire. He pleases your desire with good things so that your youth will be what? Renewed like the eagle. That's what he's speaking about here. Not only repair me, but renew me so that I will be reinvigorated to serve you with a steadfast spirit. It has a couple of meanings. In the New American Standard Version, which we use this morning, it says steadfast spirit, which means to be firmly established, to be securely anchored by God's Holy Spirit, to have our feet firmly planted, to be secure. It reminds me of Iron Mountain just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Iron Mountain is a, a stronghold in the side of an iron mountain that has a nuke-proof bunker. It's a former limestone mine, 200 feet below the ground, 200 acres of bunker, armed guards, perimeter security, metal detectors, CCTV, biometric access, man traps. It's guarded. 
because most of the federal agencies of this nation store their permanent files in that bunker. 94% of the Fortune 1000 companies store their data files in that bunker. You see, it is secure. That is what David is talking about here. Securely anchor me and protect me and guard my spirit, O Lord. And the King James Version puts it a different way. It says, it says what? Rightly set. That is a right spirit. That has a different meaning. And it's consistent with the other. It's not only being firmly established, it means to be set in the right direction. To be set on the right azimuth that is established by God. You know, when we're secure in God and he sets the right direction, when we take that first step out of this sanctuary this morning, going out into life, will it be in the right direction? Will it be to do the things that he has called us to do? The first step is so important. A small error with the first step leads to big consequences miles down the road. In artillery, you know, I was an artilleryman for several, several years. They're not just 360 degrees in a circle. They're what we call 6,400 mils. A mil is about 18 degrees. That's how fine we are concerned in the artillery about precision fire. One degree error. One degree error out of 360 at this point, 20 miles down the road, is a difference of six football fields. You get the point. We make a small mistake in the first step on down the road if it's not checked. We are way off the target. In 1979, Air New Zealand Flight 901 left New Zealand with 237 passengers and a crew of 20 to take a, fly, a sightseeing flight over Antarctica. What they did not know, the pilots did not know, there was just a two-degree error in their flight instructions. And they flew through the clouds, and then they descended out of the clouds. They did not recognize where they were, what they did see, looming immediately in front of them. Because they were 28 miles off course, they saw Mount Erebus, which is a 12,000-foot live volcano, into which they crashed immediately, and all 257 people were killed. Two degrees. A small error at the beginning. Friends, 6,400 mils. If we're off by one mil at the beginning, miles down the road, it can be disastrous. What he's saying here is not only firmly establish me, God, but make sure that I'm headed in the right direction. You see, only he can do that. Only he can do that. Because only he knows the future and only he knows where he wants us to go and where we should be. Also, he knows the obstacles the live volcanoes that lie in front of us, and he knows how to help us avoid them. Only he can set the course. Then David says that God should restore his relationship with him. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, this raises a problem. Does God really ever depart? Does God ever take his Holy Spirit away? from us. Well, when you look at it from a national perspective, there's, there's no question. Yes, he does do that. He has withdrawn his protection, his favor, and his blessing in history. Look at Ephraim. Who is Ephraim? Israel, the northern ten tribes. Because of their persistent idolatry, he withdrew himself. And Jeremiah 7.15 tells us that he departed. But you know, he's patient. He's kind. He gives us every last chance. You look at the other side of it. One of the minor prophets that you sang about, children, today, Jonah. 
He gives Nineveh of all people, the most wicked people of the day, not only a second chance, that was when he sent Jonah the first time, but he gives them a third chance. So it's not so much God departing as people resisting. You know, with his people, sometimes it seems like he has departed forever. With Judah, he said, I am going to make you a living proverb to the nations. Was he going to withdraw his favor? Yes, he did, temporarily. But the purpose was to rebuke them so that he could restore them and return a remnant to Jerusalem through whom the Savior would be born. We need to be careful when we, make, when we, when we claim Old Testament promises. You know, Joshua 1, Deuteronomy 31 says, I will never fail you or forsake you. There's some people that say, well, you know, America is a Christian nation and God's never going to fail us and never going to forsake us. That is a false claim. This promise is to God's covenant people. This promise was to the Old Testament people of Israel, and it has become the promise of the covenant people today that follow Jesus Christ. But it does not mean that God has promised not to fail and not to forsake America. If America does not repent and turn its face and seek God and genuinely confess its sin and to seek his direction, we cannot be assured that his favor will continue to smile upon America. It is a conditional promise even with Israel. You know, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, he said, okay, we have a covenant. If you keep it, you will be blessed. Stand in front of Mount Gerizim and hear the blessings. But if you do not, if you do not, those of you who stand in front of Mount Ebal are pronouncing the curses that will come upon this nation, and then later Moses prophesied that that would happen. We need to be careful about the claims that we make for prosperity and the blessings of God as a nation. But on an individual basis, does he depart from individuals? He doesn't depart, but it seems like it. Scripture is very clear in Hebrews 3. There are those that harden their own hearts so that they can never respond again. That's their fault. There are those, Jesus said, that blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and if they do to the end, that's their fault. And it says in Romans 1 and also Ephesians 4, there comes a point where he gives them over to their lusts. He gives them over, and when he does that, folks, we or they are left to their or our own devices, and then we are hopelessly lost. But God is always there. He never gives up. We're going to do the parables in the... Uh, in the uh, Vacation Bible School. And one of those is going to be the parable of the lost son. You see, the father never gives up on the prodigal. But sometimes there's this temporary feeling that, that, that he's not there. And that's because what happens is we erect the barrier of sin. And it makes us feel that he's not there. It makes us feel that we're alienated and abandoned. David knows better. David, I think, has the full assurance through the eternal covenant of 2 Samuel 7. I don't think that he's so much worried about God abandoning him as he is concerned about the disruption of the fellowship and the walk with God here. I think that's what David is saying. After all, this is the king, this is the man who sought the what? What did he seek more than anything else? The heart of God. And you see that constant fellowship and walking with him has been interrupted. And he feels like God has abandoned him. But I think David is smart enough to know that God has not. You see, we have an assurance of God's presence. We need to be careful how we read Old Testament passages. We need to be careful that when we read this passage, we don't go out saying, oh, well, God 
will depart. God will take his spirit from us. He's a fickle God. We can't depend on him. You see, there are two things that change that from the old covenant to the new covenant. The incarnation that manifested the glory of God in our presence and Pentecost that poured out the Holy Spirit. When we read the Old Testament, we must read it through the lens of the New Testament. For true Christ followers, we have this promise. Jesus promises that he will always be with us. That's the end of the Great Commission. Jesus promises not to abandon us, John 14, like orphans. And Israel's covenant promise that I quoted from Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1 a moment ago, Israel's covenant promise has become the promise to the people of God today on an individual basis. For Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, for he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say this as people, as God's people, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? God never departs from the believer. He does not withdraw his spirit. Literally says here, do not snatch away your spirit from me. It's a rare usage in the Old Testament. There are only three times that I can find where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament. Hmm. The Spirit of God, another term, is used only 14 times in the Old Testament. What this tells us, friends, is there's not a fully developed doctrine of the, old, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So once again, what we have to be careful about here when we read passages like this is to read them as absolutes. Is it possible the Spirit of God will depart? No, when we read it through the lens of the New Testament, we know that that is not true. You see, David's concern here is, I think, frankly, I, I think he is worried about God withdrawing his spirit. After all, Saul had the Spirit of God upon him. And then what happened? Just, before, just right after David is, is, is anointed by Samuel, in 1 Samuel 16, it says that God withdrew his spirit from Saul. So I think that David is thinking that that may happen. God may be present, but he may be withdrawing the power of his spirit from me. And we need to be careful with that. You see, that's dividing God. Well, God's presence versus his spirit. We need to remember that we serve a triune God. He is three persons, but he is one undivided in simplicity. He's three persons unified in one essence. And in fact, I think David really knows that, even though he may not be able to articulate it. Because when you look at Psalm 139, he really knows the Spirit of God is not going to depart. Where can I go from your spirit, David says? Or where can I flee from your presence, spirit and presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, you are there. If I take wings to the heaven, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand you see, will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. David knows the Spirit of God is not going to depart, and we should know it too. We have New Testament assurances. At Pentecost, God gave his Spirit. He shed it abroad permanently. John 14, the passage about the Holy Spirit, he says, he's sending the Holy Spirit that he may be with you forever. A little bit later, the next verse, he says, and he will abide, that is, he will stay with you, and he will be with you. In 1 John, we're told, the anointing of the Holy Spirit abides, stays with us. God gives his Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians, we're told, and in Ephesians, we're told, he gives his Holy Spirit as a seal, and the Holy Spirit seals us, a seal that is not to be removed until the day of redemption. 
We are told to guard the Holy Spirit that is in us because he dwells in us. You see, he stays with us. My summary observations on the second point is this. God doesn't want us to fear that he's going to depart. He wants to be assured of his presence. David's anxiety should cause us instead to respond confidently but humbly, Lord, draw nearer to me. It should cause us to beg him to fill me with your Holy Spirit. You see, God in his presence is always there, no matter where we go. Hymn 75 is a hymn right next to the one that you're going to be singing an invitation in just a few minutes. And here Edith Downing puts it this way. If I fly as birds at dawning, travel to the farthest sea, you are there, my God, my refuge, there to hold me lovingly. In my time of desolation, help me feel your presence near. Send a light amid the darkness, bringing hope to calm my fear. God encourage us to seek his presence, to seek his spirit. We did it this morning, Psalm 63, as we read it, the very first reading. What did it say? What did we say? We read this together. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then in verse number six, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. He calls us to seek him. We sang it this morning. Jesus, lover of my soul, let, my, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, hide me, O oh my Savior. Hide till the storm of life is past. Safe into the heaven, guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, leave, uh, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. When we sing that, we're not suggesting he will. What we're really saying is, what? Draw me nearer, 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 precious Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. I am thine, O Lord. You've heard, we've heard thy voice, and have told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be what? Closer drawn to thee. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Draw close to us. God restores our joy and our will to serve him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Here, restore means to refresh. Just as a shepherd guides his sheep, as we're told in the 23rd Psalm, what does it say? He leads me beside the what? The still waters. And then right after that, he what? He restores my soul. Restore the joy. You see, what's not said here is it isn't re restore the salvation, it's restore the joy. We don't lose the salvation, but we can lose the joy. This is restore the awareness and the contentment, restore the confidence that I have in my salvation. And in this salvation, we are told from a passage that we read this morning that we're to rejoice. First Peter, the passage that we heard Alan read, you greatly rejoice with joy, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're to rejoice in our salvation. We're to draw joyfully from the wells of salvation, Isaiah tells us. Today's opening scripture 
Once again, from Psalm 63. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing with what? With joy. And it's not our salvation, it's his salvation, you see. It's his gift to us. We don't generate it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, salvation is more than a thing. Salvation is more than a state of being. Uh, and it is that. We're sinners. We're headed toward hell. God stops us in our tracks, convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit speaks to our soul. And this morning, if you're headed in that direction, he's speaking to your soul. And he says, stop, repent, turn around, come to me, sinner, and I will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. I will save you. It's an event. It's a state of being. It's a destiny. Salvation is heaven. Salvation is a place in the Father's house. But it's far more than that. It's more than an event. It's more than a state of being. It's more than a place. Salvation is the Lord himself. Wow. You see? When we're saved, he gives of himself to us. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? And time after time after time, the psalmists, not just David, say this. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Time after time, the psalmists say this. You see, salvation is the Lord. Salvation is not just being saved from hell. It's not just being saved to go to heaven. Salvation is to be in the presence of God forever. He is our salvation. You see, this returns us to the central idea of worship, doesn't it? Worship is what? It's walking with the Lord, being with Him, serving in His presence. Our salvation is this. It's being brought back into fellowship with God. And we need to experience the joy of that. You see, the New Testament reading from this morning puts it this way. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Did you hear that? Our salvation is protected. It is reserved in heaven. It is imperishable, and we should rejoice in that. We are to be sustained in a willing spirit. This willing spirit could be God's willing spirit. It can be read that way. Uh, And when we read it that way, it's talking about his spirit wills to do these things. And we can trust his willing spirit. He upholds us with his righteous hand. And our soul clings to him. And his spirit upholds us. You see, that is one side of it. But the other side of it is, sustain me with a willing spirit, is that he imparts that spirit to us. And he re-energizes our spirit so that we can be sustained. And it is the spirit of God that does this. So that we will have a willing spirit, and here's the point. Then service to God. And worship can no longer be mundane. You see, he is inspiring us to do it how? Willingly. Joyfully. Because it is his spirit that is in us that is causing us to do it. And then finally... Finally, we come to the last point, the last verse. God commissions us to share that joy of salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. You see, this is a product of genuine worship. Not only do we benefit from salvation, 
but then he calls us to be accountable for it. True worship, then, produces a compelling desire to serve him by telling others, to teach others. It literally means to discipline others. It means to guide them and to chastise them. It literally means to chastise or discipline the rebels. It's sort of like the shepherd guiding the sheep. We are called to go out as shepherds with the rod and the staff, and through our lives, examples, and also the teaching of Scripture to guide them gently away from the path of destruction to repentance and to return to Him. You see, to be disciplers, to be disciplers, to be teachers. Does that sound familiar? What is this? This verse is nothing short of being, really, the Old Testament Great Commission. Jesus calls us to do what? To go out and do the same thing. Go out and make disciples, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And the result of this is, when we go out with a sincere joy of our salvation, when we model worshipful walk with God and people see that, and they begin to inquire about what makes our life different, and we share with them the great news of the gospel of salvation, those who are guilty, the sinners, will turn, not turn to us, not just simply have a religious conversion, not simply come to church, but they will genuinely turn and they will seek the heart of God and a relationship with God will be established. Their behavior will be reversed. They will seek him and follow him. And then you know what the scripture says, the parables that we're going to be talking about, the parables, the lost parables from Luke. What does it say about the lost sheep and the lost coin? What happens? All heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. And friends, when we go out and we do that, and we see that happen, we share in the joy of heaven. And in that way, he does what? He restores to us the joy of his salvation in us. Let me just close by saying this. It's easy for us to feel like worship and walking with God can be rather mundane. You know, I was baptized 3,367 weeks ago. It's been that many Sundays. How many Sundays has it been for you? Is it some, do we sometimes lose sight of what this means, the significance of that? You know, if you've been a Christian for two months, it's natural for there to be great excitement still bubbling over. When you've been a Christian for 50 years, sometimes we lose that excitement. What he's saying here is, restore to me the kind of joy that only you can give me because of your salvation. Don't just excite me, but give me a deep and abiding and confident joy and help me to see sinners converted. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and then our souls will be revived and we will be reminded that our work is not in vain. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work is in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. We're gonna sing that hymn of invitation in a moment. There is 
a balm in Gilead that ministers to the sin-sick soul. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this is this morning that we will genuinely seek your presence, that we will ask to be filled with your Holy Spirit, that you will renew us, you will create, recreate in us a new being to fulfill your purpose perfectly, that you will restore to us the joy of your salvation, and that we might see sinners saved. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.